Hi, this is Max Ruffler-Nadler. I'm an editor at Full Stop, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible and getting the uh, perk of receiving this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. In this desperate time, you are truly valued, and you help keep Full Stop afloat. We've always been a lean operation, so we try to be built for whatever stands in our path. And we really do truly believe uh, the world needs bizarre literary criticism, or at least we think it does. Uh, we hope it does. That's what we've been operating under. So thank you again for, for supporting us. Our website uh, is updated multiple times a week with reviews, essays, and interviews. So please check it out. One particular piece I enjoyed on the site this month was an interview with Jenny Riffle and Molly Landreth about their new book, Documenting Their Adolescence in a Small Town in Washington State. The photos are fantastic, and the publishing model for the book is really interesting. So I really recommend going beyond the podcast this month and checking out our website. Also, um, you know, what else are you doing? We know you're just sitting there at home, uh, hopefully being safe and taking care of yourself and your loved ones. So without further ado, uh, this month we're featuring on the podcast a conversation between Tamara Faith Berger and Sylvia Krostowska to discuss Krostowska's new book, The Eyelid, which is being released this month. Tamara Faith Berger is a novelist whose 2012 book, Maidenhead, won the Believer Book Award in 2012. I'll let her take it from here. Hi, I'm Tamara Faith Berger, and I'm here with Sylvia Krasowska to talk about her book, her new book, The Eyelid. The Eyelid is an immersive novella of ideas, which takes place in a near future when what we take for granted about human life Namely, its predictive cyclical rhythm of sleep and waking is under siege. I found the book lucid and prophetic. It also seemed to describe a world that I very much knew, especially the all-pervasive system of virtual reality in the book called Comprehensive Illusion, which to me closely resembled our government-surveyed, intertwined, and rather addictive social media sites. So the island takes place in Greater America, which is an international territory which has been almost fully co-opted by Comprehensive Illusion, or CI, um, to the point that all citizens are now drugged up to keep working. They are no longer allowed to sleep. No sleep means no dreams. And the only hope in this scenario lies in our narrator's apprenticeship to Chevauchet, who is a diplomat of America a renegade republic where sleeping, dreaming, and daydreaming is fostered and fully protected. So Anirica is the inverse of Greater America. It is a free plot or space where humans are schooled in the subversive nature of dreaming and daydreaming. In the eyelid, and in real life, if sleep is key to our continued existence as thinking human beings, then without dreams, life as we know it will end. The Eyelid is a bedtime horror story for people who very likely no longer read before bed. I am really looking forward to The Eyelid's upcoming publication with Coach House Books this spring. Thank you, Sylvia, for talking to me about this book and everything it brings forth. Thanks very much, Tamara, for agreeing to do the podcast with me. I look forward, likewise, to talking to you about the book. You were a reader for Coach House, so you read The Eyelid with a different pair of eyes, long before its publication. Mm -hmm. I did. Um, so if we can start, I think, first of all, I would love to talk to you about this idea um, that the book brings up of reverie. 
Chevauchet schools the eyelids narrator in the art of reverie, which is possibly the same as daydreaming, and also feels related to the state of trance. So this seemingly old-fashioned word, reverie, however, to me, truly captures something of what is lost in our present-day screen-mediated world, where I find, especially in public, everyone is eyes down fixated on the light of their phone, fully absorbed and possibly hypnotized by scrolling. So I'd love to ask you, Sylvia, first of all, what in your mind is the art of reverie? And second of all, how can we understand it as different than a kind of eyes-glazed, scrolling, hours-long trance? Okay, so so the English word reverie is a direct import from the French. It used to, a very long time ago, until about the 18th century, mean delirium caused by an illness or madness or a chimera, that is to say a wild, fanciful idea, an obsessive mental activity, highly impractical. In a modern sense, that of daydreaming, reverie can mean a meditative, associative reflection that can seem incoherent, like an actual dream, following a hidden logic or analogic. It's now basically letting one's mind wander, ceding control, allowing oneself to be lost in one's thoughts, passively, a bit like a spectator in one's own theater, in which associations of ideas and images form a procession all by themselves. It is a generally pleasant, uh, positive state, reverie is, and one in which thoughts and the imagination feed on impressions, feelings, desires, uh, memories. There is, of course, moping, mooning about, nostalgically, and dark, morbid daydreams, the reverie of melancholy with its sense of emptiness. Most people daydream without or with the mediation of digital technology. It may happen in a kind of trance-like addiction loop that we get into when we click from thing to thing, following pre-established links and finding it hard to stop, to snap out of it. Since what we encounter is designed to keep our attention and to relay it. And when we binge watch and daydream based on what we see, or when we read novel after novel, we're consumers of information. When we daydream without such direct stimulation, we call up material from our mind that matches our mood and sustains pleasure. And we imagine scenarios that are counterfactual or that aim to predict the future. I wouldn't say that our capacity for reverie is necessarily attenuated or corrupted or uh, degraded by consuming culture any more than it is by engaging in extreme sports or drinking too much coffee. But you are right to see something like an art of reverie in the eyelid. Daydreaming is definitely raised to a higher power there. It's almost something the narrator, uh, that is the book's protagonist, cultivates. It requires tearing oneself away from reality, letting go of habits, of daily habits. It's not a trance, which I think of as a more abstracted state and associated with hypnosis or enchantment of some sort. The eyelid revolves around attunement to dreams of all kinds, to reveries and to the dreams that we experience only when we're asleep. At its heart is the romantic idea that dreams, dreams period, deserve a greater place in one's life than they otherwise would have, being so renegade, so strange, and so quickly lost to memory. Anyone can experience them, time permitting. The art of dreaming is not the opposite of dreaming in an ordinary, unremarkable, and unconscious way. 
it's not that on one side you have amazing dreams that deserve to be told and on the other side bland material that can be dreamt by anyone poorly and rightfully forgotten and that doesn't merit mention. The art of dreaming, I would say, is above all else recognizing the seeds of mental poetry in every kind of material. What matters, and this is the conviction at the heart of the book, is the very act of dreaming. Letting one's mind be elsewhere and not on things of this world. That is what links dreaming to utopia. Anyone who cultivates their dream worlds, lets them grow, nourishes them, has either already found reality to be not good enough, maybe even unbearable, or will find it disappointing relative to their dream. And that state is a kind of mental revolt that can awaken the desire and the will to actually change things, and in some even engender action. This is where utopia comes in. Um, some say that utopia is social dreaming. It is dreaming of a better society. So artistic, poetic dreaming, the art of dreaming, becomes the method for social dreaming. That is to say, a means of imaginative, common world building. Self-interested dreams might be the starting point, but they are not the end. The end is an alternative, qualitatively better world. Ultimately, the art of dreaming is dreaming well, of universal happiness for the good for oneself, and so for all humanity, it is dreaming critically, exploratively, uh, expansively about the potential and the aspiration of humanity. I know that's a long answer to your question. Your comment about the state of trance, though, reminded me of something I've been meaning to ask you. When we first discussed the book over the internet, you said that reading it had put you in a trance-like state and that you'd elaborate when we met in person. Could you? The reaction you hinted at is what I actually had hoped for when writing the book. Um, okay, well, first of all, thank you for that incredible answer because I was like writing down notes. I mean, there's lots of like stuff that I really wanted to remember in there. And especially the stuff you were saying about um, daydreaming to a higher power or this like positive sort of pleasurable experience of dreaming. You talked about this kind of notion of the art of daydreaming as the seeds of mental poetry and... I don't know, it was just like a lot of really sort of exciting things, this notion of individual dreaming and then dreaming towards a common world utopia in a certain way, maybe dreaming together, which your book also hints at. However, <laughs> after I read your book and I was fully immersed in it, I literally sort of shut the folder that I had the manuscript in and right away, I had to get into my car, which was a new car. And I had to, I was rushing. I had to go pick up my kid at a certain point. I was very lost in your book, in the language, in the way that it told the story, the fact that it was sort of dreaminess about dreams. I don't know. It was very, I was really in it. And I got in the car, I live in a building, and so I have a car, this new car, this fancy new car, that, um, you know, I'm in that spot every single day. Anyways, I drove out of the parking spot that I drive out of every single day, and I felt this, this thing happen that's never happened to me before, where it was like this, I mean, I'm only going to say it and make a sound, it was like this gugunch. And I actually felt that my eyes kind of closed for a minute. It was like this really weird 
state that I was in, which is why I call it a trance-like state. And the next thing I knew, I heard my car, I, the driver of the car, drove past and into this cement post that, again, I bypass every single day driving out of this spot. And then I just got like cold, you know, like started sweating. My heart started beating really fast. See, I knew you were not an automaton and that you were going to react to my story. And I drive out of the, like, it's like I'm going down from like the third floor into outside, from inside to outside. And I got out of the car right away and I looked at the passenger side of the car and the door, it's a blue car, and there was like white cement marks all along, and the whole door was dented in. And I just, yeah, it was intense. It was super intense. And, and, and I had to get a new door for the car. So that's what happened to me, and that was not a cheap uh, like excursion. So anyways, yeah, no, it was, but I think what really struck for me in that experience was that so the lapse it was like I really felt this lapse in my consciousness and I felt that the book did that to me that was not a coincidence that this this kind of like register change happened to me and that's something that I do every single day right after reading your book was a completely dramatic occurrence it felt like I was in real mm. life, but I was in a dream. So that's what, yes, your book did to me. Yeah, well, um, that's a horrible and fascinating experience. I'm sorry you, you went through it, but also it seems to have left a, 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 an indelible mm. memory uh, and what the effect of a literary work might have mm -hmm. if you, since you do attribute some kind of mm -hmm causality to, mm -hmm. having, you know, to having read mm -hmm. my novel. And it is uh, obviously not a, you know, good effect. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think the book is meant to have a positive effect. Um, mm -hmm. That it's meant to educate us morally or to be a spur to action. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, and I don't know how much you know we're going to go into anecdotes, but it reminds me of my um, recent experience of a dreamlike state that has nothing to do with having reread the book uh, <laughs> in editing it. But I was walking up. A set of um, stairs to the subway and I uh, wanted to catch the subway that was about to leave and I heard the sound of the doors being about to close and I rushed and at the very last set of steps I felt like my legs were giving in and in fact it felt exactly like a dream experience mm -hmm. where you really want to run but your body refuses to cooperate. And so I fell, I fell on the ramp and my arm went underneath the uh, subway, the actual train. And luckily someone stepped out and prevented a train from taking off. So I still have my left arm um, as we speak. But anyway, that's, uh, that's, yeah. that dreams are very strange if we actually uh, let them mix uh, too much with reality. Yes. Yeah. And I feel that your book, there is that kind of nightmarish element to it as well that we're going to get to. But before we do get to some nightmarish stuff that happens in your book, um, the next question that I have for you about your book is that in the eyelid, the transmission of knowledge and experience is taking place between the narrator of the book and Chevauchet, his guide, um, to the point where in the book, the narrator ultimately takes over the reins from Chevauchet as a leader 
um, or a revolutionary activist in and for the land of dreams. So I was really curious about this kind of experiential transmission between the teacher and the student, or between the guide and the adept. In your book, the narrator is immersed in ways of dreaming, in particular, that are previously unknown to him. So I wonder what exactly is this process of being led that you're describing, um, and how does it differ from a traditional or academic schooling? I also, I guess, wanted to know a little bit about the camaraderie about of free thinking, um, or does like a secret of revolutionary knowledge flow better from a power differential? So from the teacher to the taught, as it takes place in your book. Hmm. I like the idea of taking over the reins. It's what uh, each generation of artists, of creative people generally does with the previous one. There is a camaraderie here, as you say. It's sharing the same spiritual space, which is without no limits. And it's a matter of passing on a tradition of inheriting something and of the responsibility that comes with it. The backbone of, of the eyelid is a strange friendship. It's a growing affinity on the plane of the imagination, the plane of dreaming. This informal civic education of desire that happens between the protagonist and Chevauché can call to mind the homoerotic relationship that existed between male citizens in ancient Athens. I mean the relationship between the Erastes, the older male, and the Eromenos, the younger partner. It's clear that the narrator is much younger and looking to learn, and that the two men become inseparable. They're alter egos of each other. The relationship is one way, pedagogically speaking, with the older man imparting to the narrator the political and social responsibilities that come with being a member of the human community. These are responsibilities that have largely been lost. And vice versa, the relationship of the younger man to the older is something like a vital relationship in that the younger man makes possible Chevauché's existence. So their friendship is the ethical center of the book. It awakens a calling in the narrator, and his consciousness expands from social alienation to being part of something greater. The narrator takes over the reins, but also, also uh, lets go of them in another sense. Okay. That's interesting what you say about the sort of the the narrator and Chevauché having like a sort of not that they're having a homoerotic relationship, but the the, the sort of texture of the relationship echoes these sort of homoerotic um, relationships of the past between sort of guide and adept, which I had heard about. I was just wanted to talk a little bit more about CI or comprehensive illusion in your book, um, which is a form of virtual reality, which for me really echoed social media, notably Instagram for some reason. And so I felt that like, you know, it seems to me that people go to social media and become a little bit addicted to it or a lot addicted to it to learn about others, you know, not to have their minds hijacked by scrolling and or, you know, being surveilled by the government. Do you find this misguided? Um, is there anything redeeming to you in the interplay between fantasy and reality um, that social media seems to traffic in. I wonder if you could kind of elucidate a little bit on your vision of comprehensive illusion or CI in comparison to social media. And I think, you know, like what I'm asking about is, 
How do you think that human beings can enjoy these sort of willfully created illusions, which I'm including cinema in there, um, before they slide into these kind of totalizing or totalitarian, I guess, veils? Um, how do illusions cease to be these exciting, freeing, or informative things and slide into traps or delusions or terrors? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I will be upfront about my complete absence from social media. <clears throat> so my experience of its possibilities and dangers or traps is limited, very limited and secondhand at best. As for the interplay between reality and fantasy, the only hope for humanity lies in that interplay. Fantasy is a ship that needs to drop anchor in reality, otherwise it's illusion. I don't have a final verdict on whether social media liberate or pervert possibilities for improving lives, possibilities that, that you know lie in greater if technologically mediated sociability. History teaches that positive, mutually supportive and inspiring social relationships, uh, awareness and a critical mind, that all this can bloom even in the most hostile environments. It seems to me that you're asking if we have a built-in mechanism by which such attraction turns into aversion, something like a threshold where we stop and turn back towards reality. Or, to put it more provocatively, perhaps, are we protected from self-destruction that comes of indulging in a virtual society to forget about the real one with its horrors and insoluble problems? Um, is there something protecting us against complete absorption in the transmundane? And my answer here would be yes, and it's the body, the materiality of individual existence, experience. But being saved from ourselves by our body needing and refusing to function is obviously not enough. There are other challenges, other dangers that we have contributed to, dangers that we are still wishing away, and that the virtual connected lives we lead do not really help to confront at all. Social media is a means of escape from certain aspects of reality. They are a way of seeking recognition while avoiding face-to-face -face contact. The benefits of contact, if you like, without most of its risks. But that is only temporary because it's also clear that it, that, that social media encourage vulgarity, bullying, and which runs rampant in them, and they can bring out the worst in people. In the book, I imagine comprehensive illusion, CI, to be a fully immersive, multi-sensory virtual reality in which people engage in world building if they want to. But despite the illusion of boundless freedom to imagine and fulfill one's fantasies, the choices in CI are centrally controlled. Everyone participates in this parallel world, it's a daydreaming on demand. You get in and you let your mind drift and you obtain everything you desire. It's also, it's a, it's a purely pleasant, exciting and kind of an adventurous experience. And most would prefer that to reality, except that this apparent utopia is actually an ocean of strangers, each thinking mostly of their own satisfaction until they are bumped off when it's time to return to the nightmare of reality, to get back to work, which takes up most of their time. Even if altruistic needs are expressed in CI, they are wasted. They lead to no real-life assistance or change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 
<laughs> what you say there does really echo some stuff about what I know of social media. Connection without its risks, you know, poor behavior, um, and this element of the whole thing being controlled. So I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, can we talk a little bit about this directly subversive mode of thinking in daydreams that Chevauchet alerts us to? I think my question is further, how does daydreaming work against the status quo? Because I kind of think that that's um, uh, it's like very relevant, you know, in our times and the times that we're living in right now. How can our brains stop being hijacked and controlled, if that makes sense? So the literary language I used in the eyelid was the organic outgrowth of its content, the, the adventure and dreams. There is the poetic side. Um, there is also the theoretical. Chevauchet is a theorist of his own practice, of his own subversive practice. And he gives the protagonist the theory to make sense of his mission. The word theory comes from uh, the ancient Greek for the action of viewing and speculation. It means a set of ideas that fit together but they are here oriented towards the future, what should be done for justice and happiness to come about on Earth. Chevauchet's theory is a theory of action, a revolutionary, subversive action even, rather than mere speculation about the future of the world or a detailed idea of what the world should be like. No one here dreams up utopia. Even if Chevauchet is uh, motivated by a universal utopian happiness, as not just desirable, but also as possible. But the eyelid is a utopia wrapped in a dystopia. It's about the utopian dream of universal happiness being dreamt in a world that betrays it. The name of that world is Greater America, uh, and it's built on a sham American dream because sleep has, um, as you said, been banned from it. Dreaming as an art, the basis for all the other arts, I'd even say, um, cinema including, is subversive um, in the sense that um, it's the act of imagining things being different from what is, from the given. The French philosopher uh, Gaston Bachelard understood the imagination to be the art not of forming but of deforming images, of subverting images. Uh, to imagine something else, especially another possibility, even if it seems absolutely impossible by any objective measure, um, that is at odds with the status quo. As utopian writers have uh, done uh, for many centuries, is to question the necessity of what exists. History can provoke such questioning as well, but uh, it is, of course, um, in large part, an effort of the imagination. It tells us about worlds very different from our own. But merely transgressing reality in one's mind is not enough, I'd say, for the kind of transformation Chevauchet would like to see. What is needed is an educated desire, educated in social values, in the ethos of uh, solidarity, community, perseverance, cunning, uh, courage, conviction and responsibility, uh, passion and reason, and also pleasure, not sacrifice. So, okay, I hear what you're saying, that the eyelid correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of about utopia being dreamt in a world that betrays it. And so that's why the eyelid is also a dystopia, you, right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I was really struck 
by the reoccurring image of the black swan and the white swan in the book. Um, and at times, it might have just been one time, but it really, really struck me with their necks intertwined and verging on strangulation. So this image of the black swan and the white swan with intertwined necks strangling themselves felt very doomsday to me. You know, is this what the end of the world is going to look like? You know, animals of the same genus killing each other and other things in your book, like this permanent autumn, zombie-like humans who can't sleep, uh, and life thrust underground. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book, we uh, no longer take sleeping pills, right? Only waking pills. But these are not the red pills of truth, as in the Matrix. They allow citizens to be maximally productive, but also to participate in a mass uh, illusion that is being fabricated for and by them. They know that this is an illusion. They are not fooled, but it's still immensely satisfying. It's as if they took both pills, red and blue, at once. But in the utopia that Chevauche dreams of, we wouldn't need any pills. Uh, now f- for the swans, I don't want to spell things out too much, and I'm not even sure I can. The black swan in particular has come to stand for something whose discovery, whose very existence overturns a system, falsifies it. And so by extension, it's also uh, become a metaphor for a major unexpected, um, a virtually unpredictable event. It's because until a few centuries ago, black swans were thought uh, impossible, a fiction. And since writing the book, I've seen the black swan in street demonstrations in Paris as an omen of a revolution staged by the yellow vests. This, this particular swan uh, was made by fine arts students and it was wheeled out to act as an enormous shield against the police when things got really violent. It was symbolic, but the symbol, although it catalyzed hope, did not obviously turn the dream into reality, the dream of social revolution. Black swans have some, often hidden, white feathers. The white swan now is a sexual symbol as well as a symbol of purity, not to mention of beauty. But in reality, it is not completely white either. The coincidence or unity of these two opposites is mythical. It signifies perfection, fulfillment, but it has, as you say, this dark uh, apocalyptic side. Out of this desire for oneness in the moment, very moment of amorous union, the swans strangle uh, each other. So transcendence here has two sides, love and death. And I don't know, is this the true end of something old? Or is it the true beginning of something new, some kind of alchemical process? In Baudelaire's famous poem from the flowers of evil that I cite, the swan represents the melancholy nostalgic poet confronted by modernity, out of its element, stumbling over cobblestones, and uh, thirsty, suffering from thirst. It, the, the swan, or he, the poet, has no place in a world where action is not or no longer the sister of dream. Hmm. Thanks for that elucidation. That's kind of interesting. I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about um, in the eyelid how we enter the world of dreams with our narrator and Chevauchet, literally enter them by this practice of dream hopping, which is an ability for both the narrator and Chevauchet to spy on or in people's nightmares. And so I wondered if this um, dream hopping that you talk about in the book, is it all related to the practice of 
lucid dreaming, which has an element of choosing what we dream. A lot of like sort of dream people talk about choosing what you dream and meeting people in your dream that you know and that you don't know, and everyone is involved in the same dream, which is a lucid dreaming. Um, and I also wonder if nightmares, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about next, can be analyzed or understood as a function of traumatic historical circumstance. I mean, those are two pretty different questions. Mm. The lucid dreaming question and then the nightmare as um, a function of traumatic historical circumstance. Mm, okay. I'd say that dreams, if we have them at all, often bear the stamp of reality, right? Obviously, in the form of recomposing elements from our waking life. If the times um, are turbulent, unsettling elements can make their way into our dreams. Uh, they can reveal worries. Uh, it can be intimations of trouble even before things blow up. They can be used diagnostically also. Charlotte Barat's archive of dreams that she collected in Germany under Nazi rule between 1933 and 1939, and which she published in full uh, only after the war as the Third Reich of Dreams, shows to what extent an oppressive reality can infiltrate and even dictate what we dream at night. Barat was looking for social pathologies that emerge in reaction to the rise of national socialism, which there was no escaping even in dreams for her. As for lucid dreaming, it is virtually absent from the book. It would be, to me, too much uh, of an interference rational meddling, um, an intervention into something to which we need instead, I think, to be more attentive. Okay, so you were talking about this um, book, The Third Reich of Dreams. I mean, I, I, in one of the dream-hopping moments, Chevalier shows the narrator the nightmares of, I guess maybe just one, but the nightmare of someone during World War II. And it's, you know, a dream of being hunted, um, it's a dream of the victim, a dream of the Jew. So I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the Jewish undercurrent in this book. So what does being a Jew signify in this French or greater American world? Um, is there a kind of subliminal preoccupation with the Jew in the eyelid? Um, and the way that the Jew, and more recently the Arab, who's also present in the book, um, has been treated in the 20th and 21st centuries, um, do the narrators and chevauchés hidden or more marginal identities point to a landscape of dreams as an escape from state terror and real-world suffering? Um, yes, it is no doubt a reference to state terror and to Jewish suffering in the Holocaust. So the Jewishness of the character chevauché motivates his need to evade another, this time universal, disaster. So anti-Semitism and racism are very much alive in the world state of greater America. But the disaster that, that is looming is, is greater than, than that, is greater than, than a disaster uh, of genocidal proportions. In an interview from 2019 that you did with Jeff Bercy, you said, without literature, there'd be no such thing as a street. I really like that. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this. Um, I guess what I interpreted as this particular magic or transposition of literature, um, and just, I guess, how you work as a writer in this realm. 
I, I really like that question. Um, and thanks for finding it uh, in, in this interview. So thanks to the literary imagination, uh, which works with personal experience and history, the city has a kind of, the city street has a kind of mythology. It has its stories of solitude and society, um, of hope and despair, of unexpected encounters, amorous encounters, of social inequality, of eye-opening misery, uh, of riots, of barricades and revolutions, of roundups, of which we can read uh, on commemorative plaques. It comes back to the unpredictable, but also to the marvelous. This literary mythology of the street is based on the observation of city life by such authors as uh, Retif de la Bretonne or uh, Louis-Sébastien Mercier, and then the romantics Victor Hugo and Gérald de Nerval, and of course Baudelaire, and then Zola, and then most recently uh, the surrealists André Breton and Louis Aragon. The cinema, much younger art, has, has given material form and made explicit these uh, mental images. The imaginary of fiction and of poetry, in a way, paved the way for the cinematic avant-garde of early 20th century city symphony films that document um, metropolises, uh, Paris, Berlin, New York, Moscow, Sao Paulo, and so on. So can you, like, so you basically, when I said, when I asked how you work in this realm, you see your work as a continuation in this vein of, of cinema, of filmmakers and yeah. writers contributing to this. Adding of, to the mythology. mythology. Yeah. No, that's inspiring. I guess my next question, I guess, because most of the people you referenced in that list were French and surrealism is a French genealogy, I believe. Um, and because the eyelid feels very French, taking place in Paris, I wonder how you relate to Canadian literature or Canlit, as it's called, um, as a writer. Is there any Canadian literary strain that you feel that you can place your work in? Any avant-garde or intellectual tradition of Canadian writing that you want to let us in on? Um, I should say that I cannot boast extensive knowledge of any national literature. And given the nature of my academic work, I'm also selective about what fiction I read. So I cannot, I mean, everyone's selective, but I, I, I'm maybe more selective than most writers. Um, so I, I cannot speak to the correspondences between my fiction and the Canadian literary scene or the history of Canlit. Mm, I did want the eyelid to be a bi-literary uh, book, drawing on Canadian Anglophone culture and Francophone culture, which involves being literate in French culture. Mm -hmm. um, so despite its apparent Frenchness, it's a transnational fiction, like its author. <laughs> my life's experience is multilingual, and I can't really call English my native language, but I'm not suffering from a cultural identity crisis. Um, a question for you, as an established Canadian author. Five years ago, you'll recall, I had invited you as a guest speaker to present your novel Maidenhead in a course I was teaching then on the literature of transgression. 
Sadly, the event never happened because of a strike at my institution, but I remain taken with your book, not only because its themes were of pedagogical interest to me, but also because of its style and voice, which I found dreamy rather than just personal or stream of consciousness, and dreamy in a precocious, uh, adolescent kind of way. Uh, how does daydreaming come into your protagonists' inner lives, their impulses, and uh, their acts of self-liberation? You know, I think that when you were answering my first question, it felt, you know, about the art of reverie. I really related to it from a literary or, you know, from a first-person point-of-view character sort of way. Um, and you, you talked about the theater and the mind the art of reverie being a kind of like tuning in to the theater of the mind, this wandering within the theater of the mind and the mind actually being a theater. Uh, I really love that uh, German word. I don't know if you know it called Kopfkino. I think that when well, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about my characters and I'm talking about my character in Maidenhead, I feel like there's an element of, um, yeah, concocting the, you know, fantasy cinema or as you call, you know, when you also reference bachelor and talking about this deforming impulse, I feel like that most of my characters have these impulses of wanting to change what is in front of them. I think there's an element too, and I'm talking personally, of self-soothing, which I kind of hate that word, but they say that for babies, or, or not babies, but like children, well, and babies are supposed to learn how to self-soothe. And I feel like personally, and as a literary artist, I feel like I self-soothe with these kind of daydreams or movies in my head. But I think that, and I think that a lot of maybe particularly women do that, but I could be wrong that it's just women, but it's this kind of daydreaming or self-soothing or fantastical thoughts to ultimately, yes, make something happen, you know? And I feel that on the page is kind of the great way to make these things happen. Yeah, I think it's a refuge, you know, for lack of a better word, this, this dreaminess or this ability to kind of concoct in the head. And I think that this dreaminess or fantasy impulse going up to the limits of reality in my books the narratives sort of crack through from dream into the reality of the book or, you know, so I, I, I really find that it's a very fertile space, daydreaming. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. They act on their fantasies. Yeah, because that the book is the place in which to do it. Yeah, I've always gotten a lot of satisfaction from that as a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, in in that same interview with uh, Jeff Bercy, which was a great interview, uh, you said, I see us living in a time of rude awakenings from dreams that didn't feel real enough because they weren't bad enough. What we took to be right and good and even sacred is revealing its noxious side and consequences. So I feel like this is going on today. It's like a very intense uh, quote from you like what do you prescribe as our ongoing rude awakenings today um, do you think that this sense of liberation for all will ever occur or are we doomed to repeat forever the same rude awakenings from dreams of peace and liberation and then I guess seen from another angle seen from this sort of noxious noxiousness and the consequences um, what can or what does a bad dream do can it clear out this 
sort of shit from our psyches? Good question. What does a bad dream do? Mm, I guess it makes us appreciate reality, that the dream was just a dream. A good dream does the opposite, reveals the banality of reality, I find. But the, ni- the nightmare makes us appreciate the life we have, the world that we've inherited and that we are making. It isn't all bad. And in any case, uh, we can't start building universal peace from scratch. So maybe a bad dream makes us wonder how we got here. The question then becomes, how do we get out? The island does not actually contain any recipes for action, any prescriptions, yeah, any pronouncements on what, what we should do and, and how do we wake up to a better a better world. Mm-hmm. I guess as it relates, because I mean, so much of your book feels very pressing and it feels very related to the world that we're living in right now, and with the, the sort of very hyper dramatic um, American election going on right now, and listening quite a bit to Bernie Sanders, I wonder how you would. I know you say there's no prescriptions in the island, but I guess are 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 Bernie Bernie supporters or Bernie bros present-day dreamers of America? I think reality places constraints on dreaming big. And any movement, such as that around the Sanders candidacy, is also a collective fantasy that makes many concessions to the existing state of affairs. The hope is that if he goes on to win the next election, he will communicate his dreams to those who didn't vote for him instead of just having to compromise with the status quo. And that will determine if the American dream come true is for all or just for the select few. Uh, If it's to remain narrowly about upward social mobility for individuals or about freedom and equality, life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness globally. The hopes channeled by Sanders and his supporters are the unfulfilled hopes of yesterday and going as far back as the 19th century. They just haven't been realized, but more like dashed. Uh, We think of the future as continually passing into the past, and we forget that the reverse is also true. Through the living, the past continually passes into the future. In thinking of time only as a succession, the past vanishes to make way for the future, and the present is just the moment of this passing. But in the retrofuturistic dimension of the eyelid, that past and the future are actually co-present. The present is where the past and the future intertwine, as in that image of the necks of the two swans. Well, thank you. I think that's an amazing place to end it, that the past and the future are co-present. And I definitely hope that uh, Americans can figure that out. I don't know if they can, um, but I really like it. To leave everyone with that image, and I hope that everyone reads The Eyelid. It's a really bracing, intellectual, stimulating, um, sometimes dangerous read. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I I really think this conversation was probably uh, the best I'm ever going to have about this book. (laughs) And your questions were extremely provocative and, and, you know, made me think about about a book that I finished at the end of 2017, so quite a while ago now. And they, yeah, forced me to 
update uh, some of my thoughts as well. So thank you so much, Tamara. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, and thanks to Full Stop as well. Yes, thank you, Full Stop. Thank you for listening to the Full Stop podcast. You can support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag. And you can always find a ton of reviews, essays, and interviews at www.fullstop.net. We hope you're staying safe out there and we'll see you next time.